let me begin with something that I read some time ago by a very well-known author. He said a few years ago, psychologist Ruth Berenda and her associates carried out a very interesting experiment with teenagers designed to show how a person handled group pressure. The plan was very simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. Subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line on separate charts. What one person in the group did not know was that nine of the others in the room had been already instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line. Okay? Regardless of the instructions that they heard, Once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather to vote for the next to the longest line. So here are the charts as they appeared before each group when the votes were taken. Now, the desire of the psychologist was to determine how one person reacted when completely surrounded by a large number of people who obviously stood against what was true. The experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. The uninformed would typically glance around the room in confusion and slip his hand up with the group. The instructions were repeated and the next card was raised. Time after time, self-conscious, uninformed people would sit there saying that the short line is the longer line simply because they lacked the courage to challenge the group. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of the cases and was true of small children and high school students as well. Berenda concluded that some people had rather be president than be right. And that's certainly an accurate assessment. That basic test the author says, was removed from any feeling of emotion. It was simply a logical examination to see how a person handled group pressure. The point, it's one thing for peer pressure to be determined in a classroom under the watchful eye of a professional psychologist. It's another thing entirely when it happens to your child or to mine or to you or to me who is surrounded by a majority that says the next to the longest line is really the longest line. The moral and the ethical implications that accompany such an experiment are frightening, the quote the author said. Believe it or not, that author penned those words nearly three decades ago. The moral and the ethical implications have been realized and they are horrifying to the extent that the church is in danger of losing its distinctive voice. The moral and ethical lines have been redefined by the world rather than adhered to by the church at large. This is why multiple surveys taken by very reputable organizations indicate that while 95% of the American public claims to be Christian, very little moral impact has been made upon our society. Abortion seems to be here to stay. Homosexuality has permeated the culture to such an extent that the idea of same-sex marriages has become an issue within the confines of Orthodox Christianity. Divorce or 
the way they like to call it today, conscious uncoupling, as one celebrity called it. Among professing believers continues to keep pace with the rest of the culture. Promiscuity, infidelity rages among Christian teens and their parents. And the seductive pursuit of success has claimed myriads of fathers and mothers, distracting them from raising their children according to the scriptural principles and paradigms. And the list goes on and on and on. All of this confirms the frightening idea that much of the church has buckled under the pressure of the world around us to call the short line longer than the obviously longer line. We are pressured to embrace a lie rather than take a courageous stand for the truth. Carl F.H. Henry, one of the foremost thinkers and theologians of our time, once said, quote, because our sights are fixed on antichrist philosophy, namely that success consists in embracing not the values of the Sermon on the Mount, but an infinity of material things, of sex and status, that we little sense how much of what passes for practical Christianity is really an apostate compromise with the spirit of the age. It's pretty hot stuff. Our generation is lost to the truth of God, to the reality of divine revelation, to the content of God's will, to the power of his redemption, and to the authority of his word. For this loss, it is paying dearly in a swift relapse to paganism. The savages are stirring again. You can hear them rumbling and rustling in the tempo of our times. D.L. Moody put it very simply and probably much more able for you to grasp when he said, the place for the ship is in the sea. But God help the ship if the sea gets into it. Friends, do you recognize the taste of salt water? Because we're about neck deep in it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in the J.B. Phillips version says this, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. Thus, you will prove in practice that the will of God is good and acceptable to him and perfect. Here's another way to say it according to the message. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God, and then you'll be changed from the inside out. In too many respects, we have become too well-adjusted to our culture. We've stopped thinking. Why? Because the God of this world has not only, quote, according to the scriptures, blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, but he has distracted our attention as believers so that it is not fixed on God. Therefore, we cannot be conformed to his image when we're not fixing our focus on him. Because outward transformation is dependent upon inward renewal. That's the essence of Romans chapter 12 too. That we don't conform to the culture, but we're transformed how? By the renewing of our minds. A.W. Tozer once charged that a whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is, it is possible to accept Christ 
without forsaking the world. And that gets them saved. But Jesus said something different. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. James said that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's in James chapter 4, verse 4. And speaking of James, his clear message concisely and incisively outlined in verses 7 to 10, which we're going to look at today, cuts to the heart of every Christian who struggles with the temptation to cave in to the pervasive influences of our culture. With James, as we have already seen, there's simply no discussion, there's no confusion, there's no concession, there's absolutely no compromise, right? You get that from James? There are 10 curt and urgent commands in these verses, verses 7 to 10. We call them the 10 commandments of James 4. 10 imperatives that demand our personal attention and deliberate action. And together they communicate one central truth. It is simply this, that the remedy for our worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. The remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. And when I say godliness, I'm not talking about a list of boxes that you can check. I'm talking about God himself and becoming like him. And if you remember how I closed the service last Last week, true godliness and true holiness is what, is what um, David said in Psalm 17, uh, 51 when he talks about, I desire truth in the innermost parts. So the remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. So how do, do we pursue that? Well, I've summarized James's 10 imperatives into four brief statements identifying the basic elements of a renewed heart for God. And we're only going to look at two of those phrases this week, two next week. Here's the first one. Submit and resist. Submit and resist. Let's look at verses 7 to 10 right now. James 4. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Just those verses. Two words that rarely make it into our 21st century vocabulary are these two words, submit and resist. Or if they do make it in, they're they're kind of flip-flopped in their focus. To submit means to line up under authority of another, to arrange or to place under. The Greek word for resist refers to the act of aligning oneself against or to stand against something. James says, if you're going to maintain an effective Christianity which has influence in the world but does not become of it, of its self-centered humanistic system, you're going to need to decide to subordinate your will to God's will and to stand against the devil who is constantly strategizing to lure you away from him. Now, the word submit is anathema to a self-oriented, self-sufficient, self-governed culture, isn't it? The world we live in does not readily submit to God and resist the devil, 
Rather, it submits only to self and resists God. You can read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, and verse 18 to get that. We won't look at that today, but you could put it in your notes. You see, because it's a proud world that we live in, isn't it? It's a proud world we live in. Through technological advances, mankind has come to believe that he can do pretty much anything. Pride was the sin of the devil, who is now temporarily, as we've seen, the ruler and God of this world, according to many scriptures. But God, it says, James says, is opposed to the proud. Verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know that word opposed right there in verse 6 is the same exact word as resist in verse 7, where it says to resist the devil. Same word. But God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, James says, humble yourself. Line up under God. Only then will you be able to stand up against the devil who seeks to deceive you, distract you, and devour you. That's what the scripture says that Satan's all about when it comes to attacking us. Going to deceive us, distract us, or devour us. That's the message. That's James's message, sweet and simple. Submit and resist. That's the first thing. Submitting to God means recognizing him as supreme in your life. Do you? Submitting to God is excruciatingly difficult for the proud. But it's necessary as a remedy for worldliness. James lays out the naked truth. He says, submission to God is the beginning, middle, and end of the prodigal's return from disastrous familiarity with the world to the security of the father's home, says one author. The prodigal never would have returned if he didn't submit himself to God first. What does it say in that Luke 15? It says, when he came to his senses, right? And he started to pray. And we all have a little prodigal son in us, don't we? little tendency to be prodigal. We get a little too friendly with the world. We don't recognize that it's a bunch of pig slop, like the prodigal son, right? We get sidetracked by the allurements of it. And before you know it, Satan has us reeling. What's the remedy? You tell me. What's James say? Submit, resist. The grammar of this original language calls for urgent action. In other words, it's a command. When we submit to God, we can actively resist the devil. On the flip side, we cannot completely submit to God unless we resist the devil. So it's this vicious cycle, right? It's a definitive action, James says. We must actively take our stand against our enemy because he is our enemy. And we need to recognize him as such. But we don't always view him that way, do we? You need to know that your enemy is ruthless and he is absolutely unyielding. He is interested in one thing and one thing alone if you are a child of God. Your destruction. Jesus said it. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and what? Destroy. John chapter 10 verse 10. First Peter Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to cozy up to. No. Devour. 
And then Peter says, but resist him firm in your faith. Resist him. He seeks to subvert our loyalty by luring us into self-centeredness and world-centered allegiances, attitudes, and activities. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13 says, For this reason then, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, resist the devil. Stand against him. And the promise, according to James, is that what? If you submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil, what will take place? He will flee from you. How many of you believe that? Ever experienced it? Well, James employs a very specific grammatical structure here in this particular phrase. I won't bore you with what it is, but it basically means this. When you take your stand against the devil, then he will flee from you. But remember that taking your stand against Satan requires submitting yourself first to God. You know why Satan flees from us when we take our stand against him? When we have first submitted ourselves to God? Because he flees from the God in us, he doesn't flee from us. But if you're not submitted to God, he has no reason to flee, does he? In fact, he doesn't. What this says to me is that you and I need Jesus to resist the devil. You don't have Jesus, he won't flee. Matter of fact, he'll turn and attack. Acts chapter 19, we got a classic example for us, a model that we can look at. Acts chapter 19 and verse 11. Some miracles that were happening here at Ephesus. God, in verse 11, it says, of Acts 19, was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. They plead. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not by whom we've submitted our lives to, but whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, the Jewish chief priests, were doing this. And verse 15 says, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, hey, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You want to be that person? fleeing out, clutching your derby? No. You need to submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Have you submitted your life to Christ by faith? Because if you have, there's no need to fear. Resist the devil, and he will flee. We, in the scripture, by the way, are never, never, told to flee from him. 
Now, we're told to flee from other things in the scripture. There's going to be a list on the screen. If you're taking notes, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll just mention them. Flee immorality. Flee from idolatry. Flee from the love of money. Flee from youthful lusts. And in the Old Testament, we have an example of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife's sexual advances. These are the things the scripture tells us to flee from. But not the devil. We are to resist the devil under the power of God and he will flee from us, James says. But note also that we are never told also in scripture to pursue the devil after he flees from us. As if we were chasing him down. And you laugh, but there are all kinds of ministries out there that actually say to do that. The Bible doesn't call us to actively and aggressively pursue Satan in a spiritual battle, but only to resist him clothed with the full armor of God. Amen? We are exhorted to pursue other things in the scripture. The flip side of this, the scripture tells us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Instead of pursuing the devil, James says we are to pursue intimacy with God. Draw near to God, James says in verse 8, and he will draw near to you. Where in the scripture are we ever advised to go out and kick the devil's butt? Show me. Because contrary to some who advocate aggressive spiritual warfare, we are never called to engage him that way. Friends, it's already been done. It's been done. Satan is a de- has defeated the enemy. Christ, de- uh, I mean, Satan is a defeated enemy. Christ has defeated Satan at the cross. Just read John chapter 12. His butt's been summarily kicked. He is still active in, in trying to seduce us into believing his lies. And so he devises all kinds of ways to tempt us, to resist God's will and to submit to his, but resist him and he will flee. You say, the enemy of my soul is constantly on my back. He's driving me crazy. You know what I say? Stop giving him the keys. (laughs) Satan cannot lead you into sin without your consent. Say that again. Make sure you get it. Satan cannot lead you into sin without your consent. As long as your will is submitted to God's will, you can resist him and he will flee. Want to get your life back? Want to feel like it's under the control of God rather than being driven by the world, which is under the control of Satan's seductive power? Submit and resist. The remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. Secondly, James says, draw near and get clean. Draw near and get clean. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So first thing we need to address here is the principle involved. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a principle. 
If you haven't noticed yet, worldliness distances us from God. And guess what increases with distance? Error increases with distance. The men's retreat yesterday, we were playing horseshoes. You know, you could probably get a lot of ringers if you were playing from 10 feet apart. Now you back up to the, to the regulation size, 40 feet between the pins, and all of a sudden there's all kinds of errors going on, right? Error increases with distance. And that's true spiritually in your life. The further you get away from God, the more sin you're going to fall into. It's a vicious cycle which must be broken. A return to intimacy with God requires a radical change of direction and a drastic change of conduct. But do you feel distance from Christ in your relationship right now? Does it feel maybe like he's not around? Well, the first thing you need to check, if that's the way you're feeling, is your daily habits, your spiritual disciplines, your daily habit of life. Would you say that it was more worldly or more godly? Where's your loyalty been lately? If you feel far from Christ, take a moment and try to ascertain which one of us moved. Did God move away from you? Or was it the other way around? You see, the closer we get to the world, the further we get from the Father. But the invitation to return is always there in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, drawing near to God doesn't require a spatial journey. It's a spiritual journey. Biblically speaking, we experience God's closeness when we exhibit things like, they'll be on the screen, take notes, brokenness, there's scriptures there, repentance, prayer, faith in Christ, and obedience to the word, among other things, but those are very scripturally clear that when we do these things and then we engage in these things, it's drawing us closer to God. One of the distinctive elements of our faith as Christians and something other religions have difficulty comprehending is that not only can we draw near to God, but he's not running away. He draws near to us. And you can count on that principle. That was the element which set Israel apart from the pagan nations around them. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, we read, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Isn't that a great verse? It's distinctive for Christians that God draws near to us amongst all the other religions. So it seems like all the other religions are chasing after God and he's running away. Not Christianity. God came to us. And all we need to do is embrace him by faith. By grace, through faith. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. What an invitation. Draw near to God. What a promise. And he will draw near to you. So are you feeling far from God? I'm telling you, he hasn't moved. We have. 
Like the father of the lost son in Luke 15, again, the prodigal son, he's waiting, the father was waiting to welcome and restore that young man. And our heavenly father is doing the same. In fact, the minute we begin to return, the minute we repent and we turn to come home, he sees us coming from way far off and you know what he does? He starts running toward us to embrace us. That's when death is arrested and our life begins. But even in the parable, that son's return was preceded by a major change both outwardly and inwardly in him. And it's not enough just to draw near, but we must get clean. Get clean. That's the prerequisites here. The principle is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The prerequisite here is to get clean. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Being immersed in a lifestyle that mimics the godless culture around us infects us. It morally contaminates our outward conduct and our inner attitude. Communion with God requires purity of hand and purity of heart. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6 says, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Now, the language of James here is the language of the Old Testament priesthood. When he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, he's he's thinking in this Old Testament picture of the priesthood. Standing between the altar and the burnt offering and the door of the tabernacle was the bronze laver. Before the priests could approach God in the tabernacle, they were required to ceremonially purify themselves. They had to wash. And so do we. I know there's all kinds of flags going up in all your minds right now. Stick with me. Track with me. To attempt to approach God while ignoring our sin or refusing to admit our lives have been saturated with it doesn't cut it with God. He sees right through that facade. When my grandchildren come to the table without washing their hands, they can't hide it. It's dirt. Right? It's apparent to everyone at the table, and they're required to take care of that problem, hopefully. Attempting to draw near to God in worship on Sunday when we live like the rest of the world all week long. It may get past me, and it may get past your friends, but it's not going to get past God, in whose eyes every aspect of our lives is open and laid bare. Now, I just use that as an example, but let me tell you something. It's not about just coming here on Sunday and drawing near to God while you live in the world all week long. That's every day of our life. Every day of our life, because worship's out there as well as it is in here. God doesn't wink at religious pretense. He knows we're sinners in need of forgiveness. You know, outwardly, we can make people believe that we're really holy and righteous, right? But on the inside, we're full of dead men's bones. You need forgiveness? James doesn't mince his words. He calls us sinners. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's talking to church people here. We need to wash. 
Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15 says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You see, the problem is, though, is that we can't wash our hands of sin. We cannot purify our hearts ourselves. We do not have the power. The Old Testament priests couldn't do it either. That's why Christ had to come. We can't erase the stubborn stain of our wrongs or cover it over. Jeremiah 2.22 says, Though you wash yourselves with lye and you use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. So you ask, well, how can it be done? We must come to Christ. Only God can cleanse your hands and your heart. But you know, we must choose to come to him before he will actually do it. He's not going to force it. Take a minute now. I'm going to read some scriptures. I want you to close your eyes while I read them. Get a picture and an image in your mind from these scriptures about how to get clean. Psalm 51 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. Purify me with hyssop, Lord, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Acts 22. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. By the way, baptism doesn't cleanse. Calling on his name does. Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a heart, true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Or do you not know, Paul writes to the Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Revelation 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Friends, the heart is desperately wicked, right? Scripture says, in and of itself. 
and it needs purification constantly. Why? Because we so easily fall into spiritual adultery, as James pointed out last week. Our allegiance to God is compromised by the alluring power of life in this world. And that's why James, without apology, nails this problem we all have to the wall. He calls it double-mindedness. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And literally, the term in the Greek means two-souled. Two-souled. It's as if you have two souls. Isn't that a disturbing term? It paints a picture of a soul's loyalty being divided between faith in the world, faith in the world, faith in the world. But James, you and I know that we can't have it both ways. If you are worldly, godliness will suffer. Worldliness strangles godliness. But godliness destroys the hold of the world upon us. The upshot of all this is that all of us need to get on the one side or the other. You can't serve two masters. But you want to know what the danger of all this is, is that we try to ride the fence. We think we have it pegged. Only a little of this here. Not going to hurt anybody, but the reality is that most of us are in the deep weeds. We're not on the fence at all. The entanglements of the world around us are pulling us under rapidly and silently. And the tragedy is we have inhaled so much water that we don't even know we're choking and drowning. We're being lulled to sleep. Richard Foster once wrote an eye-opening newsletter that applied so readily to the modern church. And next week... I'll uh, bring that out and share a few brief excerpts with you. But in that article, he identified three of the most pervasive idols of our present world which vie for our allegiance, and they are these, personal autonomy, pleasure, and efficiency. We'll talk about those next week. But David spelled out the tragic fallout of divided spiritual loyalties in Psalm 16 and verse 4, and he said it very clearly, very, you know, right to the point, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. God wants not only undefiled behavior, clean hands, but undivided affection, pure heart. Psalm 86.11 embodies what ought to be our constant prayer. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart Fear your name. Just remember that last part. Make it your prayer every morning, first thing when you wake up. Unite my heart, Lord, to fear your name. Give me an undivided heart. In other words, God, I don't want to be too sold today. I don't want to be too sold anymore. Make me focused. Make me focused on you. With all its enticements. How then can we keep from getting sucked into this seemingly irresistible and seductive draw of the world? The answer revolves around the concept of maintaining our focus. Stay the course. Keep your focus fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this. I came across this, something that explains exactly what I mean. It's a little bit of a different way of putting it, but... In building high commitment in a low commitment world, author Bill Hull described a scene that many of us, especially our wives, might readily relate to. He said, one afternoon while shopping in a department store, I walked into a jewelry section and was startled by what I saw. 
An elderly man stood with his unconscious wife stretched out on the floor in front of him. He was mumbling something like, I, I, I knew we did too much today. I just knew it. We were on our feet way too long. And obviously, he was entering a mild state of shock himself. So I rushed over, the author says, and I arrived simultaneously with a gaggle of department store personnel, and the delegation was armed with chairs, wet cloths, first aid kit, and no doubt a legal document or two to be signed. But in the midst of all this whirling around her, the woman slowly began to regain consciousness. And so we helped her into a chair. And someone asked if she needed water. Another asked how she was. An employee questioned, do you want anything? And without hesitation, the half-awake woman pointed to the jewelry counter. Yes, I want that silver bracelet. And everybody burst out laughing. But the author thought, there's a woman who never lost sight of her mission. You know, folks, focus is something that we have sacrificed on the idolatrous altar of efficiency, of worldliness. But the remedy for worldliness is the pursuit of godliness. Don't ever lose sight of your mission. Submit and resist. Draw near and get clean. That's James' message to you today and to me. Next week, we'll look at the two final elements needed for a renewed heart for God, and that is get serious and repent, get small and become great. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your good news. The good news that in Christ we have forgiveness and grace that sets us free. Free, free, forever we're free because death was arrested. And now we have new life in Christ. May we walk in it as the scriptures encourage us to do so this week and each day for, until you come to bring us home. In Jesus' name I ask it, amen.